Welcome to One More Time, a wind band podcast. I'm Emmett O'Brien, and today we're going to be talking about representation in music. We'll be talking to a music education professor, a collegiate band director, and a composer about their thoughts on why representation is important, how to incorporate representation into the classroom, and resources for promoting diverse music selection. Today's story was produced by Emmett O'Brien. Welcome back to the Sousa Archives. This is Daniel Dresser. We're going to get a little deeper than our last conversation and talk about Sousa's hobbies, along with a little bit about the context behind some of his pieces. Scott? Uh, what can you tell me about uh, his other non-musical hobbies, or just maybe the impact that being involved in baseball had on his music career? Well, that's an interesting question. I've, I've actually not been asked that before, so I was actually kind of delighted to have a new question. <laughs> um, yeah, baseball um, was one of several sports that he enjoyed. It was a team game, and he almost always played the pitcher role. Um, so, in some respects, um, you know, the the sport during the 19th century was a very physical sport. It was an infield game. Um, your baseballs were squishy. You, home runs were incredibly rare, and you wouldn't knock a ball out of the park in the mid 19th century. It's just because the ball wasn't designed to do that. So you've developed techniques to. Um, keep the infield play tight, which in many respects um, required you to be very physical with each other's team. So running a base and your second baseman wants to maybe slow you down a bit, get in the way. Or maybe I stand pretty hard in the way so when you slam into me, you fall backwards and then I hit you with the baseball to take you out. Um, so in some respects, I think that piece was very integral to him because the baseball team is is a well-oiled machine working together as a team, and in some respects, he treats his band that way. And so his band always, well, members of the band always played baseball with him, and um, and when they traveled, they would do pickup games of baseball. And so the camaraderie you have on the baseball diamond follows through to the kind of camaraderie and inter um, interactions with each other on the stage in terms of how you work together. So in some respects, baseball, I think, was that element to, to take the camaraderie and teamwork model from a, a performance art situation into an athletic event that could be physical. Now, we, we talk about baseball. I mean, the two other hobbies that um, he loved, horseback riding, just hands down, he, he loved horses. He rode all the time. Um, it was, you know, he would horseback ride from Philadelphia to New York and back, okay, and... Um, you know, there are no highways for the horses to race up and down, okay? Um, 
and it would take several days. So you know, horseback riding is an integral part. I think that's largely an individual thing where you know you, you can be one with yourself and or enjoy the peace riding either by yourself or with another colleague who shares the same interest. And um, it's my firm belief that clearly his love of horseback riding probably came from his mother. Um, although I, I have nothing substantive to, to document that. Um, the only other competitive sport that um, Sousa was quite good at was trap shooting, uh, shooting plate pigeons. Mm -hmm. um, he, he was quite good at that. Um, um, some would suggest he was at the top of the, you know, the pile of people, you know, doing trap shooting. That isn't exactly accurate because if you look at the ratings, he would finish in the top 25 or 30, but he was, you know, he was not number one, but he was quite good at it. And so, you know, if you think about the three things that um, kept him physically active, um, you know, would be baseball, horseback riding, and, um, you know, the, the clay pigeons. And, um, you know, we have many photographs of him um, at these shooting matches. And you go to the historic newspapers, you can see what his rating was for a particular competition. Um, how much of that does he actually involve in terms of his music? It's hard to say. Um, when he was at Willow Grove, he always brought his horses with him. Horseback riding every day, sometimes twice a day, was an integral part. Wow. It was his way to relax and um, maybe find his, his creative self. If he's having a, a challenged time, the guys aren't exactly playing as a well-oiled machine and he's a little annoyed, um, maybe a long ride would give you a chance to kind of just center yourself and come back, look at the problem. And correct it. So if you look at these kinds of sports, you begin to see how they interact with one another. And that was an important part of his entire career, both as the director of the U.S. Marine Band and as director of his civilian band. In terms of Sousa's actual works, um, did he actually go through any varying periods um, during his life, such as Beethoven, with um, his three main periods? Um, you know, if we use the um, um, Beethoven is the model, that, and I would say probably not. There were, for Beethoven, significant turning points. Um, and if we're looking at, uh, if we only look at the symphonies, you know, we've got you know, basically three, five, and nine. Um, from that point of view, you each, you know, the introduction of uh, the romantic symphonic form really is often attributed to the um, third for Beethoven when the reality is, you know, there were many other things going on at the same time. It yeah. just happened to be that several things percolated and he wrote an extraordinary work. And, um, of course, Napoleon doing something stupid <laughs> and retitling the whole work to become the heroic, uh, you know, I, I, part of it's just timing. Um, Sousa, um, 
he had distinct periods where he focused early in his career theatrical works, um, working with various librettists. Um, most, well, every one of his theatrical works had one march, um, El Capitan, for that particular operetta. Um, and it's a damn good march. <laughs> um, it's not to say the operetta isn't good, but it is the memorable piece um, that stands out. Um, as I said, um, you know, he thought of himself or wanted to think of himself as a theatrical writer. Um, and I think if he hadn't gotten involved with the lyrics and let the lyricists, the ones who were skilled, work on that, I think we'd probably have a very different output of Seuss's works. Um, he wrote, um, you know, when Prohibition was um, enacted in 1919, he was so annoyed he writes the work Wets in the Dries, um, which initially did not go over well because it had a different title, um, but it was largely to express his frustration that, you know, Congress had wasted legislative time enacting what he considered um, a useless act, um, which for everybody did not stop him from drinking a glass of wine with dinner. So, well, there may have been prohibition. Sousa, we have a glass of wine. Okay. Um, World War One, um, significant historical event, and. You know, he served with the Great Lakes Naval Band um, as their commander to train musicians and grow the repertoire. Um, most of the um, works attributed to World War I usually come afterward. Um, and um, in some respects, you know, he, he wrote pieces that um, could be either well-timed with the historical event, which meant free advertising, and he would use that if there's a news item, it's a headline in every newspaper across the country, he's got a new march, he hasn't quite got a title for yet, well gee whiz, Sousa has a new march, you know, and uses whatever that theme that seems to be in everybody's mind. Um, so in some respects, he didn't write the song based on a theme, he just, he copped a title because that's what was in everybody's mind in terms of the press. Um, and so again, are there just clearly distinct periods um, where he makes radical changes? Um, no. I mean, in the 20s he, he gets into writing um, and playing um, music for silent movies and he called it his movie tour, um, in which those movies no one would have ever heard unless you open up a book to see what the <laughs> titles are. Um, I like the one, you know, he provided the music to Rin Din Tin, which I, I just can't even wrap my head around. But okay, you know, he did love dogs. He had lots of dogs at home, <laughs> so maybe that worked for him. Um, but yeah, getting back to Beethoven, no, nothing distinct um, in terms of a radical shift in style. It tended to, to
to move um, in various directions based on what would interest him, what he would get a commission for, um, or knew that he could um, tie to a significant historical event. Um, and in terms of marketing, that's quite frankly what I think he, he did best. Um, and um, we have great works that um, we often don't think about in terms of what their connections were with the history. That's all we have time for today. This has been Daniel Dresser and Scott Schwartz, live from the Sousa Archives. Stop by the Harding Band Building for a tour of the Sousa Archives and learn something new. For this edition of Two Minute Rehearsal Techniques, we have Dr. Michael Mapp, the Director of Bands at New Mexico State University. Dr. Mapp previously served as the Director of Bands at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. He has also served as the conductor for the Kansas City Civic Orchestra and as a guest conductor for the Medical Arts Symphony of Kansas. I think uh, that perhaps the most important element of making music with others is, in fact, the rehearsal. I think it's um, in rehearsals when relationships are formed. between individuals. That's when individuals learn, no matter what level of musician we're dealing with, they learn how to relate to one another and get caught up in each other's creative processes. And so I think that being a conductor or director, we need to keep in mind and and allow our focus to stem from a place of service. And so when we're in service, we're in service to the music, we're in service to the ensemble, both its purpose and its members. And this idea of service Uh, should influence everything that we as conductors do. It should drive our actions and how we approach the rehearsal. Now, of course, being in service to the music means that we study our scores and we grow as musicians on a daily basis. I think we all understand that, regardless of what level of music that we're dealing with. Uh, A grade two piece, I think, deserves just as much respect in regards to study as a grade six does. But if we are in service to the ensemble and its musicians, then I think we must take an active role in providing the best possible atmosphere in which to be creative. And in order to do that, we have to foster an environment that provides a professional setting and allows for collaboration and growth between everyone in the ensemble, including the conductor. And so to get to that level, though, sometimes we have to establish that uh, as a model, as an individual and a musician ourselves. So if a conductor isn't willing to move equipment, set up chairs, stands, rack chairs and stands, stuff music folders, hand out music, pick up music, then I don't really know that they should be able to stand in front of a group. Uh, Most of the time, if not all the time I show up to rehearsals at least 15 to 20 minutes early to make sure that everything's ready to go. And it gives me time to make sure that um, the chairs are set up, the podium set up, all of that. But more importantly, I've noticed that it allows me to interact with musicians off the podium. If need be, I can discuss a part with them. I can uh, answer questions that they might have, help with some sectional things. But also it allows me to see how the individual musician approaches the rehearsal process. I see who shows up early. How early do they show up? I I get to see um, what do they do when they get there. Get there. Do they tune? Do they warm up, etc. And then ultimately, I think that once all of these things are in place, and you're willing to do that as a conductor, it really helps you have an atmosphere in rehearsal that. Um, 
is not only dominated by the technical, but more so making something that's uniquely inspiring, musically enriching, and knowledgeable. I want everyone to leave rehearsal knowing that they've played their part in creating something musically expressive and unique, and that they've come together and made something bigger than themselves. And so I hope this little tip helps. Thanks. This month's episode features a conversation about representation in music and how we can all work to make music education more inclusive for all types of identities. Our guests for this episode include Dr. Joyce McCall, Assistant Professor of Music Education at the University of Illinois, Betsy McCann, Assistant Director of Bands at the University of Minnesota, and composer Jody Blackshaw. We first talked to each guest about why they believe representation in music is important and about their individual experiences with representation both inside and outside the classroom. I, um, I think we all need a bit of an aha moment. We all need, forgive me, a bit of a slap across the face uh, for us to realise that, um, goodness, we've only been playing works by men. You know, goodness, why? You know, why? why, why? And, you know, historically that's the way it's been. I don't want to detract at all from what any male composer has contributed to the, to the repertoire. In fact, in fact, I think it's vital that we don't, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but from from my perspective, uh, you know, I just I just think of a child who is of a different nationality, of a different gender, of a different colour, of a different race, um, who who really does live in a very different world outside of school. And something that we know a great deal from neuroscience and research into neuroscience and then its application to education is that we must contextualise educational experiences for students in order for them to make whatever they're learning part of their neural net, to make it part of them, to weave it into the fabric of that person. We've then got to reach into their life outside of school and we've got to, you know, tie those things together, you know, crochet them together. Um, and so if we're only playing music that is irrelevant to a particular student or a particular group of students that doesn't have any relevancy for them in terms of their life outside of school, in terms of their culture, in terms of their gender, in terms of their colour, then then what we're, not, what we're doing is keeping music as something that only exists inside the band room. It only exists in that space. And when that child finishes playing their instrument, they put it down and go, right, well, that was a bit of fun, and they never think about music again. It hasn't become part of their neural net. It hasn't become part of who they are. And in my opinion, if that child was in my group, then I failed as an educator because I haven't given them a lifelong love of music. I think that representation in music means that what we see and what we hear in our music world is reflective of our society that we live in. So I, I would hope that, you know, with appropriate or equal representation, the people with whom we live in our communities are seeing or hearing people in music or hearing music that they feel like resonates with them and speaks to them. But I would say because there there are not a lot of black females in the band world, mm. um, both in predominantly white schools as well as predominantly black schools <coughs> um 
I just knew that I was one of few. And so, you know, I didn't want to be the 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 person that they look at and be like, well, I knew she wasn't going to be, you know, great. Or I knew she was just, you know, mediocre. And I think part of it has to do with just being black in, in America because, you know, you... For so long, you have to you you see yourself as yourself as being black or being African American, but you also see yourself how other people see you, particularly white folk, and so you're looking at yourself um, with these double vision eyeglasses, and you're trying to um, please both sides. Um, now I have to say, like now, I really don't care. I'm like, this is me deal with it or kick rocks um but i think with being one of few um helped because it 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 forced me to 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 continue to stand on my own two feet but also to be very creative because there aren't a lot of us and so two especially in music education i'm one of very very few black women um, particularly at predominantly white institutions, so it it forces you to to be creative and to to figure out who you are. So like like I know for a fact that there's no other person who does what I do, who speaks the way that I speak, and who does the sort of work that I do um, in this country as a black woman in music education. Next, we talk to each guest about how they believe conversations about representation can be incorporated into the music classroom and how identities need to be discussed in any setting. Okay, well, my classroom is kind of a movable feast in that it's just whoever I'm working with at the time. Um, I, I don't have a regular group anymore, which is very sad. I certainly miss having a regular group. Um, I was recently uh, in... Um, Minnesota. I was in Minnesota. I was at uh, the. I had a short, short visit at the University of Minnesota, and then a few days at Saint Olaf College, and then I went into Wisconsin. My first time in Wisconsin, I went to the University of Wisconsin Eau Claire campus with John Stewart, um, and it. I was very impressed that the students were already extremely aware of the need for diversity in repertoire. So maybe I just got lucky with the schools and colleges that I was in. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I really wanted to talk to people about the fact that the repertoire is changing. I think there's a, a, a more, a bigger picture here, Emmett, and it's not necessarily, um, it's not necessary to hammer the idea that we need to play works by a, a, a more colourful range of composers. What we need to understand is that in playing works by a more colourful range of composers, the repertoire is going to grow. The repertoire is going to change. And if the wind band genus is going to remain to exist and remain relevant not only in education but in art music centres, then the repertoire must bust out of this stale rut that it's stuck in. Um, and in my opinion and based on my experience, I think that the composers we are we have now writing for band, look at Catherine Salfelder's recent grade two contribution, reminiscence to, to the repertoire. How absolutely outstanding to have a composer like that create a grade two work. 
you know, um, the repertoire is going to change as a result of this. And so I think the conversation to have is, yes, it's really important to pick colourful repertoire. Uh, it's important that all of those composers feel included as as part of the, the wind band genus. And let's be honest, wind bands do it better than any other genus, in my opinion, um, of, of music making. We absolutely embrace the new. But so far we've been embracing the new in that top grade five, six part of the repertoire. Now it's time to actually bust everything open from grade one to four and say, you know what, this part of the repertoire, it's time for it to grow as well. It's time for it to change as well. So it's not just important to say let's look for something by a, a woman or let's look by, for something by a composer of colour or let's look for something that's by a non-American. It's also important to make sure that you are picking different styles of music, different genres, di works that, you know, treat the band differently, that push you as a conductor out of your con out of your comfort zone and have you try and bring different kinds of works to life that treat the ensemble differently in terms of orchestration, maybe in terms of your pedagogical approach, that kind of thing. That's what we're, that's at the heart of diversity right now, in my opinion. I do. Yeah, I do a few different things. Um, with, with programming, I do like this trend that's going on right now where I think band directors all over the country are really working to make sure that we are programming works by composers who might not be in the normal canon. So works by women, works by people of color, um, works by composers with different backgrounds. I think that's great. And I'm on that bandwagon and doing that as well in my programming so that my students see a variety of composers and hear a variety of voices in our programming. And I do that with both my concert band and with the marching band. I, I also try to make sure that my staff, and this is mostly with the marching band, just because that's where I have a big uh, staff and a big student leadership staff. I try to make that more representative. And with a caveat of, I'm not going to put somebody on a leadership team if they're not the best person for that position. So I would certainly never want anybody to hire me because I'm a woman and they want to have a woman in the job. Um, I, I would hate that. You know, I want to get a job because I'm the best person. So, so I come from that uh, feeling. But I do think it's incredibly important for our leadership in our band to represent our students and for students to see, hey, someone who looks like me can do that. Maybe I can do that too. One thing that I've been working on the past few years is thinking about our drum major process in the marching band. We have only had one drum major who is a woman in our entire history as a band, which I think is crazy. I just I just can't believe that, you know, there haven't been more women who have done that. And when I took over in my current position running the marching band here at the University of Minnesota, I found that the pool of candidates who went out for drum major and started the process of our drum major training was just very, very male dominated and not many women in the band even dipped their toe in the water and checked out the beginning of the process. So I was trying to figure out why and trying to dig into this. And I think part of the issue is that our drum major training team, our a number of our past drum majors who are spectacular people and I love them to death and they do amazing work, 
but they're all men, not to their own discredit at all. It's just because that's what our history has been. So, so in speaking with women in the band, there's a level of them feeling intimidated by going and practicing, you know, all this physical stuff and working hard and being trained by this group of men with whom they don't feel the same resonance. And that was just turning women off right from the beginning from even trying um, in that process. And then in the process too, I know that there were just uncomfortable things for both the trainers and women in the process of, you know, how do we deal with working with these physical things with someone of the opposite gender and not being sure quite what to say. Um, So one thing I did with that is I last year found a few women who have gone far in the process in the past. They, they were not, ending up as a drum major, but they had done excellent work. They're fabulous teachers, fabulous mentors, just awesome people. And my, my committee of all the former drum majors were completely on board with doing this. We invited them to join the committee. So even though they weren't a past drum major, they're now on our training committee and they're very public in front of the band that they're part of the training team and they are helping the prospective drum majors do this. And I did find that we've had an increase in the number of women who are going out for it and trying it. And I think that makes a difference just to see somebody who looks like you, who says, yep, you can do this and I'm going to help you through it. So that's been one thing that I've found to be successful for us. I really feel that it starts way younger than college band. You know, if we in our elementary schools can get, take down the barriers for students to start band, that's where it really needs to happen. By the time students are in college, if if they don't play already, it's really hard to get started. So I think the things that are most successful are finding ways to get younger students involved in band right from the beginning. And that can obviously be related to access to instruments. It can obviously be financial. It can be cultural. You know, if students don't have band as part of their culture, they're less likely to join in the beginning. So how do we advocate for music and band and how do we advocate for why we really do this? I think it's easy for us to just think about giving a concert and it's fun and that's great but what do students really learn in band beyond you know how to play a c sharp on the clarinet or whatever it happens to be and are we making sure that we are advocating for everything that we do holistically for a person and then breaking down the systemic barriers that keep people out of it so i think that's the biggest step is making sure that in younger grades we're getting kids involved and then as a, a college ensemble i think we can certainly provide support and help for that in a lot of ways. Um, One is just getting out into schools with diverse populations and programs that are not currently serving everyone in their school. My drumline is a great example of this. They always go out and play at some schools in Minneapolis and give concerts, and they're just amazing people. They're amazing musicians. They do a great show, um, and they can show, hey, this is something that's in the community. We're bringing this to you this is something that you could think about doing too. Um, our Tel Beta Sigma and Kappa Kappa Psi chapters have done work with this as well, where they get out into the community and try to bring what we do to people who don't on their own just come to our, our football games or they don't come to our concerts. They don't necessarily see us, but we can get out to them. And I think that's, that's one step that we can take in helping this issue. I think that... Um 
music ed programs particularly, they have to sit down and think about how to weave it. Because everything, if, if we were to boil it all down, whether it is, you know, instrumental methods or choral methods or even intro to, excuse me, music education, all that has to do with social cultural stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the question becomes, who can do it? Who can teach it in a very, um, in a well-informed way? Like they know what they're talking about because there are some folks who will talk about social justice and think you can just pick up a book. It's like, you know, social justice for dummies. But that's not what it is. You got to have folks who can teach it. You got to have, you have to have a strategy and it has to be from start to finish. It can't just be this one little class and say, well, we're going to do a cultural responsive lesson for a whole week. I'm like, well, good for you. And then what? So I think... It has to be very much a part of the entire process. Um, And also it has to respond to what's happening in the world around us. And for so long and for so many decades, music education has not done that. And it's just now doing it. And it's 2019. So it's just like, well, okay, we're behind. And, you know, like for instance, when we talk about immigration, How many schools talk about immigration in their music ed classes? I don't know. I would assume, I would speculate that not many. So I think it has to become very much a part of the program, but not just a part of the the curriculum. It has to be a part of what they do. It has to be a part of their work, Um, whether it's reaching out to local schools, whether it's Edison, like Edison Middle School here or Urbana, Everything, when I say this, those folks who have no idea what I'm talking about um, will probably say, well, why does everything have to be about social justice? I mean, it's not about social justice, but everything is a socio-cultural thing, you know? Um, And at the end of the day, we we don't teach instruments, we teach people. And these people come with stories and they come with um, challenges that they've faced. And it's up to us to, to decide whether or not we want to hear these stories. We then asked our guests to share ideas and resources that they use to gather diverse repertoire for their ensembles and classrooms, whether they be websites, personal experiences, or through networking and personal connections. Actually, one great resource for me has been my students. I have, at the University of Minnesota, students who come from other countries and are studying here. And we've had some really cool uh, interactions through that. For example, this year, we played in my concert band a piece by a Chinese composer that's never been played here. But one of my students played it in his undergraduate work in China. And he said, this one's really great. And we he went home and he brought it back for us and we got to play this piece that was something completely new to us. So that was really cool. And the great thing about that is I knew I was getting something that was really authentic and not something that was kind of adopting what somebody interpreted as music from a different culture, but I knew I was getting kind of the real deal. So that was pretty fun. I also go to 
a number of different websites when I'm looking for things. Um, I'm sure that you, if you haven't talked to Jody Blackshaw, you'll hear about colorful music. She's got a website there that she put together that has a lot of really cool resources. And there's also the Institute for Composer Diversity which is another one that has just a great database to be able to search through and find some different things there that's always being updated and growing. Um, so those are two that I, I will look at just to try to find something else. And then frankly, I'll oftentimes just browse through like the CBDNA report each quarter and look at what are other bands playing? Is there something here that I don't know? Is there a composer I've never heard of before? And then go down the rabbit trails of the internet and find websites and try to listen to pieces. But I use my colleagues programs as great starting points to try to jump off of and find some new music for my group to do. Okay. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously I'm going to say go to the colorful music website. Um, I really think, and it's colourful music. Now, let's talk about the name colourful. I've deliberately chosen the Australian spelling, but if you use the American spelling, then it will still work and still take you to the website. But it's C-O-L-O-U-R-F-U-L-L music, F-U-L-L music. So colourful, as in full of colour. Um, so at the colourful music website i should count how many programs there are there there are numerous programs there that start from middle school go through high school and then up to advanced uh if you're still not convinced about whether this is a good idea you know seriously go to that web page and say i'm going to give half an hour of my life to listening to new stuff just don't don't go there for three minutes Give yourself that time. Find 30 minutes and say, I'm going to sit down with my noise-cancelling headphones and block out the world and I'm going to go and listen. Um, there's programs on there by a high school band director whose name is Julie Bounds and there's pro they're the programs she's actually done with her high school students and middle school students in honour band settings. There are six sets of repertoire there by me that are all based on themes so they're not concert programs so much, but there's usually about half a dozen works and they come from all over, um, you know, and there's some really remarkable works there by women composers of colour. But, you know, there's there's one there that's about the elements, you know, earth, fire, wind and uh, earth, fire and wind. And, you know, Frank Erickson's Air for Band is included on that program, you know, in that set of repertoire. But inside of that, you know, there there are other works that 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 colour it as well. So the whole idea is to dovetail everything. I think um, I wish I could remember the name of the band director uh, who who talks about this, but um, I've heard it said that you should pick in in your programming maybe take um, even if it, even if it was fifty percent of familiar works, and then twenty five percent should be something that's really pushing you and 25 percent is something in between that so if you were doing four works in a program two of them could be something that's familiar you know maybe works you've conducted before or a composer that you've conducted before and you know how they treat the ensemble pick something that's really going to push you outside of your comfort zone and then pick something that's in between there um, I believe that the concert programs on the colorful music site will do that um, another great website to go to, and again, it's mine, but I've just been written to 
so, so many band directors um, about my small female band composers website. If you just go to jodieblackshaw.com, there's a tab called Female Band Composers. The pieces there are only from grades one to four on that on that database. Um, and I guess I'm a little bit picky with what pieces are on there. Uh, and I need to have been in touch with the composer myself. So I've been in touch with every composer um, and talked to them. A lot of them actually didn't have their their pieces weren't um, accessible when I was building that website and I reached out to those composers. I taught them a little bit about how wind bands work and what wind band directors are hoping to see. So on both the Colourful Music website and that female band composers page on the Jodie Blackshaw website, um, you can see the piece, you can see the name of the piece and the composer, what grade level it is, you can get a link to the audio and you can see a score. Um, so you get all of that is available to you straight away. Um, and uh, it makes it really easy for you to find works. So there, there's two. Obviously, there's also the um, Composer Diversity Institute, which is run by Rob Deemer, D-E-E-M-E-R, and, uh, and, his, and his pool of people. It's an absolutely outstanding resource. Uh, and you can now go in there and say what what it can give all sorts of parameters for the kind of composer you're looking for. Um, so that that's another extraordinary resource to use. Um, and I guess, oh, you know, uh, I personally think that you know there, there's a, a a great place to start is to program works by women. Because you know we make up fifty percent of the population, so if you want to diversify things, start with that, uh, and um, in your first concert, and then maybe in your next concert, start to really explore works by composers of color. You know, so branch out into there. Um, and I don't think there's as many works available by composers of color. I could get shot down for saying that, but I'm not sure if there are yet. You know, but let's give it time. Um, one of my favourite composers at the moment is Kevin Day. Uh, he's a very young man and he's doing extraordinary things. Um, and you can find a lot of his works on the Murphy Music Press website. Um, and I think, yeah, you know, I think uh, seeking out some of those publishers like Murphy Music Press is really great. Um, Emmett, do you know Sean Murphy and that label? Do you know... Okay, so Murphy Music Press is who I'm currently distributing my works through. He is what I call the socialist of the, the publishers at the moment. Um, and he, he is a truly colourful label. He's um, got all sorts of, a range of all sorts of different kinds of composers on there. He, you know, for example, he distributes for Kate Nishimura, for Jen, Jennifer Jolie, um, now, Roshana Edizadi, um, me, uh, Nicole Pugno, just to name five females off the bat. But then he's also got Andrew Boss. He's got David, oh, do I, is it Beatum Bender? Is that how I say it? I think so. <laughs> uh, he's got Kevin Day and he's got, uh, you know, just um, just so many, you know. So um, he's, he's uh, 
really doing great work in enabling independent composers to get their stuff out. He pays a big chunk of royalties, so have a good feeling when you buy from Murphy Music Press because it means you know you're a lot of what a lot of the money that you're spending on the chart is going to the composer and is supporting the composer and enabling them to keep writing for you. You know, so um, that's and you know that that's kind of what. Uh, uh, Sean Murphy is really enabling here for, for composers and I think he's doing great work. So, you know, the Colourful Music website, the Jodie Blackshaw Female Band Composers, the Composer uh, Diversity Institute website and then if you just look, go straight to Sean Murphy and it's just called Murphy Music Press. If you Google any of those, you'll find them. Um, and uh, it, they're, they're all great places to start. Finally, we asked our guests to share some final thoughts as to why representation is important to them on a personal level. I think it's incredibly important to have our leadership, whether it be student leadership or you know faculty and staff leadership, reflect our society. And we need to have diverse voices in order to create the best art and create the best academic and educational environment. And without diverse voices, we're really not preparing our students as well as we could. So I think sometimes we need to work hard just to make sure that we're finding the best people for those positions. And it's not always going to be the person, like I said earlier, who says, yeah, I'm going to join band. That sounds great. I was in band in high school and I saw all my friends who graduated last year join band and I'm going to do it. But sometimes we need to work a little bit harder and we need to find the students who are just as capable, just as talented, just as excited and energetic, but who maybe aren't ready to take that step just without somebody prompting them. And that goes for for staff as well. So it takes a little bit more work sometimes to make sure that we're getting that representation and working toward it, but it's absolutely worth it and how it pays off for our community and what we can do. You know, I'm sitting here in my studio, Emmett, and to my left on the wall is a postcard from the Percy Granger Museum. And there's this gorgeous photograph of Percy Granger and there's a little badge attached to it. And the badge says, listen to your heart. I don't think there's a composer out there who when they're writing music isn't listening to their heart and isn't producing something that is real, a, a real part of them. At least that's what I'm hoping people are putting into their music when they're composing it. So when you're selecting repertoire, I encourage band directors to listen to that repertoire and say, is that composer listening and writing with their heart? And if the answer is no, I don't think so, I think they've just written something based on a formula, then is that music worth the time and effort? Is that music going to embellish and grow and enhance your program? Or are you just going to be jumping up and down on the one spot? Growth is so incredibly important and the only way, in my opinion, that growth happens is when we are playing repertoire that has been written from the heart by composers who genuinely want to make a difference, 
into the life of a child. That's me. That's everything that I do. I pour, if not more, of myself into a work for children than I do into the symphony I just wrote. You know, it's more important to me because I know what kind of lasting effect that music can potentially have on the child. My um, my thing, uh, I, I know when we have these conversations with band directors, Emmett, and a lot of people say to me, I don't have time. I don't have time to look at new works. I don't have time to try something different. I'm just too busy. You know, the colourful music, you know, website is there in concert program form. So somebody can just say, I'm just taking that program and doing it because I don't have time to research any works. And I trust Kevin Sedatole. I trust John Lynch. I trust their repertoire choices. I'm just going to do that program. You know, that's why they're there. But my comment to a band director is exchange the words I don't have time with my students aren't worth it and tell me how that makes you feel. The girls in your band need to know that women write music too. The girls in your band deserve that as so do your, your students of colour, so do your students of different nationality. They deserve to feel attached to your program by playing music that has something of them inside of it. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Since you're already here, please rate the podcast on iTunes or like and leave a comment through the post on our website. If you enjoyed the episode, spread the word by sharing the show through Facebook, helping more people listen to and enjoy the podcast. Please consider following us on iTunes to make sure you don't miss anything if you enjoyed today's show. If you want to stay current with Illinois Bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook, join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands, or find us on Twitter at Illinois Bands. You can always check out more information on our website, www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producer of today's show is Dr. Anthony Messina, and the staff of the podcast includes co-host and occasional producer Daniel Dresser, producers Stephen Cohn, Emmett O'Brien, Caitlin Nelson, and Mary Allison Mahachek, who is also our script supervisor. The mixing of the episode and recording of segments is done by Marcelo Champion. Of course, none of this would be possible without the Illinois Bands faculty. Stephen Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Beth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We would like to thank Dr. Michael Mapp, Dr. Joyce McCall, Jody Blackshaw, Scott Schwartz, and Professor Betsy McCann for their contributions to this episode. We hope you will join us next time on One More Time.